The first three chapters of Genesis, we're going to be reading, though, starting in two. So you can turn to two, but I'm going to be kind of using these first three chapters as our text for the, the day. All righty then. Always wanted to like, I know that whenever we're in here, sometimes we hear like the kids playing and stuff. I always want to see like what's going on. Because usually Emily is like going crazy and I'm like, what's she doing? But usually she's just uh, having fun. All right. So let me open up by saying um, that I, I am very passionate about the Bible. Um, and I don't say that to be braggadocious or anything like that. I'm saying that because I believe that the words that are in this book are true. I believe that this is where truth lies. And because of that, it is, in my opinion, my life goal to make sure that I and everybody around me knows the truth that is found in God's word. That we not just simply go to the Bible and say, here, read it, which that's good, but that we expound and extract all the truth that's found within it. Because the scriptures are inspired. They're inspired by God. But I believe that what is inspired is the message from the Bible, not necessarily taking the words and saying, this word, when, is inspired. You know what I'm saying? Because all of us have different interpretations of what the scripture says. But the message that's found within the text, specifically to the original audience by the original author, is the inspired conversation. That's the conversation that I want to be a part of. Because in getting the inspired message, we begin to apply that inspired word to our life. So, for example, if we go to the creation story, I'm not going to go too in-depth, but the original audience would have found something much deeper than just a science report about how the earth was created. They would have learned a lot about Sabbath, which is a different sermon for a different day. But I want to learn about that truth more than I want to learn about how old is the earth and how did God create each part of the earth. You know what I'm saying? Does that make sense? Um, so today, my goal is, is that we start to see things through the lens of the original audience and the original authors. Uh, Tim Mackey of the Bible Project, if anybody's ever listened to the Bible Project, he's a brilliant, brilliant scholar. I'm going to be quoting him probably a lot today. Um, but he, the example he gave is every single one of us in our context carry a mental, if you will, encyclopedia that if you were to go into our brain and were to find a way to get all of the information out, you could probably put together an encyclopedia of information for our context. The problem is, is that our encyclopedias are a lot different than the encyclopedias of 2,000 years ago. Very, very different. We now live in a technological age where there's iPhones and all this crazy stuff. So if we went back 2,000 years and said, did you download the Facebook update this week? And they're like, What's download? What's Facebook? And are you a psychopath? You know what I'm saying? You, they'd be like, what are you talking about? So the same would be true the opposite way if they came to us and they're speaking to us in their context. And a lot of the times we look at it and we're like, well, this doesn't make any sense. Or we'll listen to them through the frame of our context. And I think we do that with the Bible a lot. We go to the scriptures with our already preconceived, pre uh, whatever you want to call it, our encyclopedias, we go to the Bible carrying our encyclopedias and we read the Bible and we get interpretations based off of what we already have in our head, as opposed to letting the Bible put that stuff into our head. You see what I'm saying? Read the Bible. Let the Bible interpret your theology. Don't let your theology interpret the Bible. You see what I'm saying? Um, so my goal today is that we take off our encyclopedia, if you will, and that we put on the one of the original audience, and that we extract the original message today, because I think that we have really missed it. Um, I actually preached on these first three chapters, I think it was like May, did I have it written down here? I don't have it written down. It was like May of 2022. I did a message on these first three chapters, and whenever I was preparing this week, I felt the Lord leading me back to these first three chapters, and I was like, why? I've done this before, it's going to be just a recycled message. Um, but the truth that the Lord was showing me in this is a different, it's the same conclusion, but it's a much deeper and profound truth found within it. And um, I'm just going to honor the Lord. The Lord, I have not been able to get this passage off my mind for probably the past couple months. If I ever write a book one day, which I don't know if I ever will, but if that ever comes down to it, it would be over what we're talking about today because I'm just so passionate. Because my opinion, we get this book and we open it where? The beginning, right? If we start at the beginning, 
then most likely what we're reading in the beginning is going to drive our entire rest of the Bible. Like What we get from the first three chapters is what's going to drive the rest of how we look at the rest of the Bible. And so it's really important, in my opinion, that we understand what's really happening here so that we can see the Bible the whole rest of the way through the correct lens. Okay? We all good? I grew up Pentecostal, so don't be afraid to talk back at me. Give me the amens, the hallelujahs, the praise God. Start running around, flopping on the floor. I'm all about it. So let's, let's, let's get going, you know. Um, so I also want to give a disclaimer. My goal today is not to close my hands around my conclusions. I don't want you guys to say I want to believe everything Matt believes, okay? There are some things that we're going to be approaching today that I'm going to give you some, like, ideas and theories that rabbis have had, that I've had, and you don't have to accept those theories if you don't want to, but I'm simply challenging us to see these scriptures differently, okay? That's the main goal is that we think differently, not that you think like me, okay? All right. Are we all good? Are we all tracking with me? Okay, let's go. Genesis 1, in the beginning... God. Everyone say, in the beginning. beginning. Say, God. Now say, in the beginning, God. The The rabbis, back when they, uh, in Second Second Temple Judaism, they did what was called Beit Sefer, which is where ages 5 to 10, they were responsible for memorizing the entire Torah, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. How many think they could actually do that at the age of 5 to 10? Memorize five books of the Bible. That would be like us telling Emilia to memorize the first five books of the Bible. Shouldn't even read yet. So, but in Beit Sefer, the rabbi would go to each individual student. The first thing that they would have to quote is, in the beginning, God. And so he would go student to student, in the beginning, God. He would stop them. Next student, in the beginning, God. He would stop them. Next student, in the beginning, God. He would stop them. And he would stop every single student at that part, in the beginning, God, because there is nothing more true in what we read at the beginning is that God, before anything else, there was God. And the rabbis emphasize that, that when you read it, in the beginning, God. That if nothing nothing else really matters, because in the beginning there's God, is what the rabbis would teach. Now, it says, the next part says, the earth was, in the Hebrew, tohu vavohu. Say tohu vavohu. It's a fun word to say. Um, Marty Solomon translates that as chaotic nothingness. It's like putting nothing into a blender and pressing whip. Now you might be asking, you're like, well, you put nothing into the blender. Wouldn't that just mean that there's nothing at the end? And they would say, exactly. It's a very different line of thinking. On day one, God said, let there be light. And there was light. In day two, God created a vault to separate the water from the waters, and he called that sky. Come on, we should have learned this in children's church. Day three, God gathered the water together to one place, and what appeared? Dry land appeared, and then there was the seas. In day four, God created the sun and the moon and the stars to separate the days and the nights, the years and the months. Day five, God created the birds and the animals of the sea. Day six, God creates the land animals. And to top off his creation, God creates what is called Adam, man. And not only did God just create this being, but he created it in his very image. That is important. It is important that we highlight that here. God created man in his own image. That's where we have to start. A lot of times we like to start our our whole theology at the fall. In the beginning, mankind fell. But the most true thing, the most true thing, this is if you're taking notes, the point number one, the most true thing about God's creation is that everything in God's creation is very good. And that includes you. It's important. Breathe for a second. Everything in God's creation is very good. On day seven, we see God resting. Was God tired? Or was God's job complete? A quick word about Sabbath that I have written down here. I believe that God rested and made that resting day holy, which, fun fact, the only thing God calls holy in the days of creation, is Sabbath. 
But I believe that God made that resting day holy because he wants us to understand that everything that needs to be done is done. Even when we feel that we have more to do, our work is done because we are here and we made it. God is inviting us to rest with him so that we can see creation and call it as he calls it, very good. Again, creation being very good is where we must start. We cannot start our journey at Genesis 2 and 3 because we are missing the truest thing about all creation. I'm not Listen, we're going to get into the problems. We're going to get into the sin. All those are very real things. But the most true thing about creation, the most true thing, is that it is very good. When we see creation for what it truly is, we draw assumptions and view the story through that lens, not our theological presuppositions that tell us that mankind is a fallen race, which Scripture never calls mankind a fallen species. There was a, I was going to name him, but I'm not going to for the sake of, of just, I don't, want, I don't want to bash anybody. But there was a speaker one time, and this is how he described um, mankind, specifically those who didn't accept his ideologies and theologies. He said this, the moment when you take your first steps through the gates of hell, the only thing you will hear is all of creation standing to its feet and applauding and praising God because God has rid the earth of you. That's how not good you are. I'm going to read it one more time. I want you guys to feel this. This is, this is where a lot of American theology is, by the way. They won't say it out loud, but this is how, if you ever look on any church, I'm not saying our church, we don't have this on our website, so I can say this confidently. But if you look on a lot of churches' websites and they talk about the state of mankind and they talk about mankind being corrupted and separated from God, to the truest sense, this is what they're saying. The moment when you take your first steps to the gates of hell, the only thing you will hear is all of creation standing to its feet and applauding and praising God because God has rid the earth of you. That's how not good you are. Does this sound like it lines up with what we just read in Genesis 1? That God created mankind in his image and everything in creation is very good. Does that sound like God and everything in creation is excited to be rid of you? It doesn't, right? Makes you wonder where they get that from. Now, I want us, before we go into the problem of the story, to picture what is called uh, in the Hebrew mind, shalom. Rabbis like to draw a triangle. I'm going to use my fingers because I don't have a whiteboard. I wish I had a whiteboard today for a lot of what we're going to talk about, but I'll just try to make you picture it as much as possible. They would have a triangle, and they would have God, mankind, and creation. And when those things are functioning the way they should in concordance with one another, that is shalom. When everything is operating with one another, that mankind is operating with creation, creation is operating with God, mankind's operating with God the way you're supposed to. That's shalom. And that's what was established in the very beginning. I know that sounds like Illuminati. That's not my intent. But that's, <laughs> sorry, I couldn't help. I couldn't help it. Or dynasty if you played basketball. Um, but that's shalom, is mankind, God, and creation responding to one another the way that they were always meant to. Disturbing that shalom can have cosmic ramifications. We'll come back to that. If you've read the story, you know the story. But if you disrupt that shalom, there can be cosmic ramifications. And we'll prove that here in the text. Now, let's go to our text. Genesis 2, I'm going to be starting in verse 15, and I'm going to be reading to verse 17 for right now. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. In the Hebrew, it says, dying you shall die, implying that you will be in a state of dying to then one day meet your end of dying. Now, we need to first put the emphasis on what the man could do as opposed to what he could not do. I think a lot of times we read that passage and we're like, man, there's a lot, man, God is cruel for not letting him eat of one tree. But we miss the first part of that where God says, you can eat of any tree in the garden. God gave him an entire garden in this story to enjoy. 
And yet we like to look at that one tree that should say something about the story. When you read the story and know how it ends, we focus on the one thing we can't do as opposed to all the things we can do. Doesn't that say a lot about humanity today is that we see a lot of things that we can't do or that we shouldn't do or sometimes we'll even talk about in the realm of Christianity all the things we can't do as opposed to all the wonderful things we can enjoy with God, right? Let's now address the elephant in the room, though. First, why would God not allow the man to eat from this tree of knowledge of good and evil? But also, why would God even put that tree in the garden to begin with? if it couldn't be enjoyed by the man, is does this make God cruel? Here are some theories that I have about these questions, but I want to leave them. Listen, I want to leave these open-ended because the text does not say anything that I'm about to say, but these are theories that rabbis have drawn and that people way smarter than me with letters after the name have drawn from this text, okay? First, why wouldn't God let man eat of the tree? Theory one, God didn't want the man to know what evil was because they might chase it and practice it out of curiosity or even just sheer rebellion. Theory two, God didn't want the man to recognize when he makes a mistake or does something wrong because God himself is a gracious and forgiving God. The proof of this is in the fact that God gives the Israelites a sacrificial system, by the way, for their conscience to be clean, not to appease God. That God's whole focus is for them. That when you sin, I mean, you could read this in Hebrews especially, but when God created the sacrificial system, you can, if you don't believe me, go to Hebrews 8 through 10. He created the sacrificial system for, a, for them to have a clean conscience, for them to understand that they are forgiven already. It's not so that if they do everything perfect, they will be forgiven. It's that they begin to see that they are already forgiven. It's very important. But that's, that could be one of the reasons why in this story that God didn't have him eat of the tree. Theory three, which is similar to the second one, but maybe God didn't want the man to ever see himself as anything other than good. What is the first thing Adam and Eve do whenever they eat of the tree? They cover themselves. Now, why would God even put the tree in the garden in the first place? One theory I have is that as, um, as I theorized and stated in the first, uh, first time I did the sermon, that maybe God was reminding them that they are not a beast and have the ability to say enough is enough. Marty Solomon does a huge teaching on this, but that they essentially, if you think about a hungry bear, if a hungry bear were to come into this room, do you think it'll be thinking in its head, man, I probably shouldn't eat these people. Probably shouldn't eat the chair. It's bad for my diet. You know, it is just going to eat anything and everything it sees. Whereas with us, we are rational beings and we are able to say, whoa, enough is enough. And could be that God put that tree in the garden to remind them that they have something that nothing else in creation has, which is their God image in them. Theory two, this was uh, credit to Rabbi David Foreman for this one. But maybe God is using this tree to remind them that it was God who placed them in the garden and that God longs for them to enjoy it. So here's how he describes it. Imagine you give, I'm just going to use my example for, uh, for Emilia. This will help me a lot. Um, if I give Emilia a gift, there's two things that I want Emilia to understand. One, I want her to understand that I gave her the gift to enjoy it. I want her to enjoy this gift. But also, I want her to know that I gave her the gift because I want her to know that I love her so much that I gave her a gift. Not that the gift actually shows that I love her, but I want her to know that I love her and have given her a gift out of love. It could be that in this story that God is using that tree to let they can look at the tree and say, we may not be able to eat of it, but we are reminded that God loves us and he's given us this garden to enjoy Another theory, this one is credited to Justin Jackson of Hillsdale College. He suggests that maybe God would have let them partake of the tree later after they had stewarded what they were given to begin with. Now, my conclusion from this was that maybe God was teaching them about how to exercise in the knowledge of just the good so that he could one day allow them to partake of the forbidden tree so that he could then show them how to control the knowledge of evil too. Again, these are all theories. Also, too, I want to I want to give this caveat. I know that we've been on Tuesday nights. I'm by me talking about all this stuff. I'm not making a historical statement about the story, 
there's a lot of good scholarship that says a lot of the story could be metaphorical and could be pointing to something different. But my hope is, is that as we go through this, that you see how you can apply some of these principles to your life, not how can I understand about the history of Adam and Eve. Okay, so try to look at it through that lens, through a picture, through a metaphor, not so much, is this historically what happened? You know, that it's more about what the principles you are applying are, not is this historical, okay? Now, let's move on. We're going to go to verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. The one thing that God calls not good in all of creation is mankind being alone. And God makes what the Hebrew uh, says an etzer connecto. The best way to describe this is, I don't have, I wish I had something to do this with, but imagine you have two opposing forces leaning against one another. If you remove one of those opposing forces, the other thing falls. Picture like two two by fours. If I were to lay them right here and I removed one, the other one's going to fall. So essentially what it's saying is, is God created for him or he wants to find for him someone who could, in, in a sense, oppose him, but not in the way where he's like against him, but opposing him in a sense of someone who can hold you up, who can oppose you, can, who can oppose you. When I think about myself, which, I mean, before marriage, I, I would have been like, oh, I'd have been fine. But now that I'm married to Brittany, if I didn't have Brittany, I would fall because she holds me up. And that's not me trying to be cute and stuff, but she holds me up. She's my extra connectdote. But we see here that it's not good for mankind not to have an extra connectdote. If you ever want to know how important marriage is, there it is in the text. Is there a, a ringing in this mic, by the way? Do y'all hear that? There is a little bit of one? Okay. Okay, I'm going to keep going, and I'm just going to trust you. I, you. I trust you. If I start sounding weird, we know who to blame. I'm kidding. Verse 19, now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky and all the wild animals. Verse 21, so the Lord, uh, I'm sorry, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Among all the other beasts, there was no suitable helper found. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took from one of the man's ribs, a better translation would be took from the man's side, and then closed up the place with flesh. Let me make sure I don't go too far ahead. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, or from the side, he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called, whoa, man. Sorry, I heard that joke one time. I think it's funny. She'll be called a woman, for she was taken out of the man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. The only suitable helper for this man is his opposing force, his etzer connecto, a woman. Now, this is a super side note, but this is why marriage is so significant in creation. Remember how I said she was taken from the side of Adam? You could quite literally say that when they are together, the two halves are becoming a whole. That she was taken, like my half, my other half, my better half. And that's what he's naming her is woman, which a good translation for woman would simply be my half or from myself. We're going to come back to that in a little bit, but it's important that we see that now, that, man, that the man, Adam, is seeing the woman as the one who is from himself, for who she is. We'll come back to that later on when he names her again. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now, this is a super side note. I promised I wouldn't do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, the first time I did this message, um, we that morning, we found on the front porch of the church at the old building a pair of tidy whities on the steps. And so the example I gave was that that guy was naked and felt no shame because he was running around Columbia with no underwear. <laughs> Naked and felt no shame. Oh, man, that old building. There was a lot of people who had no shame. Um, <laughs> moving on. 
but this might be a little bit uncomfortable to hear. But what is the most vulnerable state that you can be in when you have nothing covering you up and you are completely and totally you from head to toe? There's a reason that people feel some type of way when they have no clothes on and other people are around. You are at your most vulnerable place. In this case, the man and the woman are in this vulnerable place and have no shame. Another way you can say this this, um, is they were completely and totally themselves, unashamedly. They were walking in the garden with zero shame. We're going to come back to that as well. Chapter 3. Verse 1, here's where things get fun. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other wild animals the Lord God had made. He had said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat uh, eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, let's talk about the serpent for, for a moment. This is where things are a little weird. People don't even think about this. If you grew up in church, you don't think about this question. But what do we immediately notice about the serpent? What is he doing? He's talking. Have we ever paused and said, there's a talking snake in this story? Like, we, we read this and we're like, if you, especially if you grew up in children's church, you're like, oh, this isn't weird, it's a talking snake. Or you'll immediately assume it's the devil. Like, the devil's talking through the snake, which the scripture doesn't say that. I'm not going to say it wasn't, but the scripture does not say it was the devil. So take that how you want. But we see a talking snake. Here's some other things that we know about the serpent. We hear at the end of the story, I know I'm not there yet, but just spoiler, we hear at the end of the story that the snake or the serpent is cursed to crawl on its belly and eat dust the rest of its life. So we can infer that it's probably walking, has legs of some kind. Imagine a leg with legs walking around. Or did I say leg with legs? <laughs> a serpent with legs. Whoops. Imagine a leg with legs. That would be even more weird. (laughs) Woo! All right, all right. A serpent with legs. Something else we notice is that the serpent is reasoning with the woman. The snake is unbelievably close to human, right? So many characteristics of a human are found in this beast. In fact, the author actually uses a play on words to get the hearer, since they would have originally probably heard this more than read it, to get them to stop and be like, wait a minute. Remember the ending of chapter 2 where it says they're both naked and felt no shame? The word that's used in Hebrew is arom. Here at the beginning of chapter 3, the serpent is described as crafty. Some of your Bibles may say cunning or shrewd, but the Hebrew word is arum. So whenever you're hearing it, you hear mankind described as arom. Imagine you even talking in normal conversation, you say it kind of quickly. But then the serpent comes up and it says, a room. And you're like, wait, wait, wait. So the serpent was naked? You know, like it, some of them probably heard that and were like, this is different. Even if you're reading it, the Hebrew is, is one letter difference. So you could see it and be like, this is, wait a minute. That, but it's on purpose that the author is trying to show you that this serpent is unbelievably close to being human. We'll come back to that as well. We're going to come back to a lot of this, by the way. I'm just giving you the story as as we go through it. I don't want to go too far and too fast. Now, let's discuss the conversation being had here. For one, when the serpent asks the question, he says, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? A lot of people, especially in the West, would put the emphasis on, did God really say that? More implying that it's, what he said that should be doubted. But the emphasis, according to a lot of rabbis, would be, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Almost looking at God as a liar or looking at God as the one who is mistaken. So one, you read it as the command has problems. Another, you look at it as the character who gave you the command has problems. 
It's important. It's an important distinction. Um, all right, we're going to go to verse 4 and 5. I think I already read this, but I'm going to read it again. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Two things. Aren't they already like God? We've talked about this before in group, but aren't they already like God? Weren't they made in his image? And yet you have a serpent who's saying, if you eat of this, you will become like God. Also, did you notice at the ending what was said? It was almost like the serpent was saying that the thing that's going to make you more like God is knowing good and evil. As if they don't already know good and evil, but they do, kind of, in a sense, because they see the tree and know they're not supposed to eat of it. That's something I'm not supposed to do. Now, we're going to keep going. We're getting juicy, but it's going to get good. Verse 6, When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took from it and ate it. Did not say, by the way, originally that it was, desire, it was good for gaining wisdom. Verse 7, Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Let's not, get come up, let's not get hung up here. It isn't like they immediately were like, oh my gosh, I'm naked. Like you would, have think, you would think that in the time they were in the garden, they would have known that they were not wearing clothes. But it's saying here that the moment they ate of it, they felt the need to cover themselves because they were now vulnerable for the thing that they have done. Verse 8. Then the man said to his wife, oh, I'm sorry. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? Now, it's interesting what, that we look at this, and it's like God lost Adam and Eve. But what he's saying here is more, let me use this paperclip as an example. If I put this paperclip down, and I walk away and come back and the paperclip is missing, I'm not saying I lost the paperclip. I'm saying I left the paperclip here and it's not where it's supposed to be. That's how they're reading it here, is that you are not where you're supposed to be. Verse 10. He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. In other words, I was fully exposed where my mistakes couldn't be hidden, so I hid. Verse 11, and he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? In other words, who told you that being naked or exposed is a bad thing? Justin Jackson, uh, again from Hillsdale Bible College, suggests that God was giving them a chance here to repent, to understand what they did wrong, to confess to that wrongdoing, and to try to make things right. He suggests that if they had actually taken ownership and made an effort to truly come clean about it, that God may have allowed them to stay in the garden. We can't prove that here, but he's saying that it seems that God was trying to give them a chance to make things right. Did you eat from the tree I told you not to eat from? But what did they do? We see in verse uh, 12 and 13. The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit and I ate it. Isn't that like a man to blame the woman? I do the same thing sometimes. And my wife did it, you know. <laughs> then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So they did not take ownership at all of what happened. Now, let's, I'm going to read all of this together, and then we're going to take it slow. This is where a lot of people get hung up here. Verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust for all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make pains in your childbearing very severe. With labor pain, you will give birth to children. We're going to come back to that. This translation is not the best. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. 
To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants from the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground since you since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Now, think about this really clear, really, really, um, really good. That's not where I'm losing my English here. Did God curse the man and the woman? Did it say that he cursed the man and the woman? No. A lot of Western theology says that mankind is cursed, but there's nothing here that says mankind was cursed. There's only one thing that God actually cursed. That was the beast, the, the serpent. Now, but let's take, this, let's take this a little slow. I don't want us to get super lost here because I know we might be thinking, didn't God punish Adam and Eve as well? Let's start with the woman. I'm going to read it again. Lost my place. Here we go. I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. First, we have to understand that translations for many of our English Bibles get it wrong here. Tim Mackey from the Bible Project did a super in-depth word study and proved that the word pains here is better translated as grief. Furthermore, child labor... Or, I'm sorry, childbearing and labor aren't the best translations either. A better translation from the Hebrew would be conception. This all said, a better way to translate what God said to the woman would be, I will increase your grief in conception. I would argue that the Lord is increasing her grief so that she can see that the generations to come will be born into a fractured and disturbed world. Remember what I said about the shalom. Shalom here was disturbed because of mankind's disobedience. Tim Mackey asserts that this increased grief is likely a test to see what is done with this increased grief. I would go a step further and say that the increased grief is a tool to partner with God in putting the world back together. That God increased her grief so that she can see through God's eyes what has happened in this creation because of what they've done. This is not a punishment. This is God helping her to partner with him. Now let's look at the man. What is the first thing it says? Does it say cursed is the man? It says cursed is the ground because of you. God didn't curse the ground, but the ground is cursed because of you. The ground is cursed because of what they've done. They disturbed Shalom. Rob Bell describes sin, I already mentioned this before, but he, said, he describes it as the culpable disturbance of shalom. I know I always speak harshly against people when they say that this one sin caused the fall of humanity, but I don't want to downplay sin. Sin is a real problem. Marty Solomon says that he believes that behind all of the sin, however, lies fear and insecurity. And I would have to agree. We are insecure about our character or fear something about us or the world around us and choose what we think is best for us as opposed to trusting in the one within us. I'll say it again. Sin is a real problem. However, sin didn't curse the man here. God was showing the man the ramifications of his sin, that because he sinned, the ground is cursed, not I'm cursing the ground because you sinned. It's very important that we don't read into the text what's not there. The relationship between God, creation, and mankind has been fractured and disturbed and wounded. And because of that, we toil and we work. Or in other words, doing life isn't as seamless and simple as it was in the garden. Again, I'm not making a historical statement, but... Outside of our garden, life is not as seamless and simple because our sin curses creation because it, we're creating a disturbance in the shalom. So point number two, if you're taking notes, mankind was 
not and is not cursed. Verse 20, Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. I mentioned this when I spoke on the passage the first time, but did you notice that Adam named the woman twice? First, he named her woman in Hebrew, Isha, which means taken out of or from myself. He even says in verse 23 of chapter 2, this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Eve, however, means literally living. But it's said after that she was named that because she would be the mother of all the living. She went from being named because of who she is and where she came from to being named something because of what she will be able to produce. He sees Eve differently because of this disturbance in Shalom. Verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Let's just pause for a minute. If you think that God is only about justice and punishment, read this verse again. Because God made them clothes. He met them in their shame. He met them in their insecurity and said, let me cover that. It's crazy that we think that God just approaches Adam and Eve and is like, rage and anger and justice and punishment, but he closed them. Wouldn't the true punishment be like, get out of here. You're going to be just full of shame. But he clothes them and covers them. Verse 22, And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground by which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed to the east side of, of the Garden of Eden the cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, doesn't that, Matt, you see, there it is. God just banished him from the Garden. It's all, he can't stand them. He wants them out. Is God's, it almost sounds like God's scared. He became like one of us. We got to get him out of here. Is God scared? Is he cruel? Why would God not want them to live forever in this story? Why not just forgive them and move on? This is what most of us think, including myself when I first read it, when reading this story. I know um, growing up, a lot of what I heard was that God pushed them out. A lot of the, the, the traditions we found ourselves in were all about punishment and wrath, which is great <laughs> in the right context. Um, by the way, I'm going to give full credit to this idea again to Justin Jackson. He did a huge study on this, which if y'all want it, I can send it to y'all. Um, but he suggests that God is sending them away from the tree of life, and it was actually an act of grace and mercy. God knew that mankind was now full of shame and fractured, if God had let mankind stay and continue to eat from the tree of life, then they would live an everlasting life of shame and guilt. What does that sound like? It sounds like hell. A life of shame and a life of guilt. But God rescued them from this and gave them hope because we know on the other side of Christ that with every death comes a resurrection and fullness of life forever with God. God didn't give up on this image-bearer humanity. In fact, in the very next chapter, we still see God with them, which means that God did what? He went out of the garden with them. He got them out of the garden, but he went with them. Many say that right now mankind is separated from God in our sin, but I would argue that God has never left us in spite of the fact that we have and do sin. He never left. Mankind is not separated from God. That is what I would call heresy. If we're going to talk about heresy, that, in my opinion, is heresy. Now, why did we go through this entire story? Actually, my dad, if you want to come and play the piano a little bit, he asked me before service, I was like, yes, please. Otherwise, it'd be awkward to end it and there's nothing. Um, so why did we go through all of this? One, I wanted us to get a better understanding of the passage. But two, to understand that this story is so much bigger than a history lesson. 
There's a lot of lessons to be learned in this story. But three, to destroy any notion that God is looking at mankind in disgust. Point number three, this story, this is what a lot of rabbis say too about these stories in these opening chapters. This story is not a, a story about what happened, but about what happens. It's not a story about what happened, but about a story of what happens. Believe what you want about the history of this. This is something that we have, um, we have to deal with and have to, and let me start that part over again. Believe what you want about the history of this. This is something that we have to deal with and have been dealing with our entire lives. Let's look at this metaphorically. We live our lives in our secret place, communing with God each day. Suddenly that part of us that says we are beastly, not an image bearer, says to partake of something that we know could potentially be harmful. Then in shame of what we've done, we hide from God, assuming he can't and doesn't want to look at us. God then shows up and frequently we blame our circumstance, not on ourselves, but on others. While there are consequences for our sin, God still chooses to cover our shame and walk with us to whatever is next. Let me close by saying once more that yes, sin is a real problem, but the biggest problem that we need to take care of is how we see ourselves. Sin is something we do in response to how we see ourselves. If we respond in fear and insecurity, we'll find ourselves doing something we're not supposed to. But what did God call creation in the very beginning? Very good. Creation didn't lose its goodness just because the shalom was disturbed. It just means that we have to work together to put it back to the way it was by partnering with God, each other, and yes, even creation. When we go to our Bibles and start putting the, uh, the encyclopedia of the Bible in its context, we start to see that this whole book is about just that. That trusting God and working with God to put the world back together is what it was always about. It's not about the story of a fallen creation that gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And then, oh my gosh, we can't deal with it anymore, send Jesus. It's mankind is working together with God and we have tons of times where we mess the story up. But in grace, Christ shows up and says, I'm still partnering with you. We're gonna put the world back together. Changes the narrative entirely. I would challenge us that when we go to the scripture to never look at this as a mankind being fallen or, or separated from God. See how frequently God is with the characters in the Bible after he banishes them from the garden. He never leaves them. What did God even say? I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, if everybody wants to bow their heads for a second, um, we'll bring this to a close. How many would say um, today, for whatever reason, you have carried either a distorted view of yourself, a distorted view of creation, or even a distorted view of God? Yeah. Yeah, I feel that. It's really easy, especially in our circumstances, to see our circumstances and assume the worst, either in creation or in ourselves or in God. But let me tell you that since the beginning, creation, mankind, and God have never lost its truest form. The truest thing about all creation, including you, is that it is very good. The question is, what are we going to do to partner with God to restore the shalom that has been disturbed? Jesus paid for sin. He paid for anything that needed to be paid for and cleared our conscience. The question is, what are we going to do with that? Are we going to use it and leverage it to restore creation and to restore humanity back to this shalom? Or are we just going to sit back and wait for the next generation to do it? 
Because we have a generation, that I sound so cliche saying this, but I don't care. There's a whole generation of people coming up after us that if we don't step up and start partnering with each other and partnering with God to restore creation, that they are going to be totally oblivious to the hardships and all the stuff that they find themselves in. They're going to be like, how did we even get here? As much as we like to bash some of the last generation for some of the not-so-good theology, the one thing that they did do is they tried to reach the next generation and tried to show the next generation that you can partner with God and trust Him. I feel like in this age of especially postmodernism, where all we're doing is deconstructing everything, that sometimes we find ourselves deconstructing God and the Bible out of the picture when maybe that's not even the problem. Maybe just maybe all the other stuff can go, but the truest thing about creation and the thing we need the most should actually stay a part of our structure. So I'm going to pray, and I would invite you, especially those who raised their hands, or if you didn't raise your hand and you still think um, or have a view of creation or yourself or about God that needs to be recalibrated, that you would pray with me. Lord, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, I thank you for your, for your inspired word. And I thank you, Lord, that we have such brilliant scholars and brilliant people who came before us who helped us to understand what your word is actually trying to say. And I pray right now, Lord, that you would fix our view on how we see you, how we see creation, and how we see each other, and how we even see ourselves. That we would begin to see that it is all very good. Yes, we're fractured. Yes, we have problems. Yes, there's things that need to be fixed. But the truest thing about us is that we are good. May our eyes be fixed on you. Lord, show us how we can partner with you with you in putting creation back together today. Show us before we even go back to our workplaces, before we even go home today, show us how we can begin partnering with you to put the world back together. I believe that you have entrusted us. You've increased our grief like you mentioned in this story with Eve. You increased our grief so that we can begin to see what our disturbance of shalom really does to creation and that we can begin to see how we can put those things back together and how we can partner with you in putting those things back together. Lord, help us to never see ourselves again as separated from you, as filthy people who you're looking to get rid of, as people that once we die, then their people are going to celebrate because you rid the earth of us. Help us never to ever get to that place. Or again, if we are getting out of that place. Or be with us this week. May we be a light in our place of work. And may we see your word as what it truly is. And may we begin to lay down our guard and lay down our theologies and our presuppositions and that we begin to read your word through the lens that you created us to see it through, which is your goodness and through the eyes of those who are hearing it to begin with. We love you, Lord. We pray this all in your name. Amen.